0: A lot of times, not only do we know things about the past because, or we're in a state of knowing about things in the past, we also project the state of knowing into the future where it's like, oh, I know I have the right answer. If they only knew what I knew about so-and-so, they would all believe me. And this is a very poisonous thing to happen. And a lot of times we actually encourage people because the old leadership model was to do that.
1: Hi, I'm Vishen Lakhiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas in personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. I'm absolutely excited about the special star. His name is Tom Chi. Tom is one of the sharpest minds on the planet today. Tom is one of the co-founders of Google X. Google X is that special think tank that Google's founders set up to help Google pioneer all sorts of new technologies. So Tom was one of the first 10 people at Google X. He worked on new innovations such as Project Loon, which was Google's project to give free Wi-Fi access to people all around the world. He worked on the self-driving car by Google. And you know one of his most famous things? It was Google Glass. See, several years ago, Larry Page approached Tom Chi and asked Tom to come up with a prototype for Google Glass. Tom created the first prototype in one day using chopsticks and a bunch of other electronics. So Tom is famous for being a guy who's so brilliant, you can give him a vision, and he knows how to build prototypes insanely fast. In short, he is one of the most productive people on the planet today. When Tom was leading the Google Glass team, he had his team create a new iteration of Google Glass every few hours, every day for around five days straight, they would create three new iterations of Google Glass. That is how brilliant this man is at just Boosting human productivity. And he's going to be teaching you a number of different models and systems to just accelerate the way you see and think about the world. Here are some of the things Tom is going to be covering. You'll be learning the difference between knowing and learning and why knowing is the enemy of learning. This new model will change the way you look at your self education. You learn about models to reach mastery faster, to teach and train others. You learn how to resolve disputes in a really beautiful, conscious way. Tom is uh, been thinking about writing a book, The End of Arguments, because of these models that show you how to think better, but not just think, but to take these learnings and teach them to others, and to also resolve disputes you may have with someone. These are all the things we're going to be covering in the models. But then we're going to go on the systems. And in systems, you'll be learning about new systems to just optimize your rate of growth and learning. From a special technique to do every Friday to make you more productive at whatever project you're working on, to the idea of reasoning in actuals. It's a little bit complex to explain here, but trust me, it's powerful stuff. And finally, why doing is the best form of thinking. How to remove guesswork in terms of what you do and to learn By actually just doing. So stay tuned. This is going to be an exciting lesson. And I know you're going to get an immense amount of ideas and creativity boosters and new ways to just level up your productivity from listening and learning from Tom Chi. So, in this class, Tom, we were going to talk about some of your models of reality and some of your systems for living. Okay? I'd love for you to start with the first one, with your first key idea which is knowledge is the enemy of learning.
0: Yeah. So there's a thing that uh, there's a phrase that says that knowledge is power and broadly speaking in society we have a type of reverence for people that have acquired a lot of knowledge. So oh this person has three PhDs and of course like something like that is meant to to say oh well you know that that is a person that is worthy of a lot of respect. And actually broadly speaking knowledge is a noun that And the more knowledge that you acquire, yeah, you really actually do get a lot of potential to be able to use that knowledge. Now, knowing is different than knowledge. Knowing is a verb, not a noun. And what knowing is, is a verb that you choose to do with your knowledge. When you're you're in a state, and the, the key distinction is that when you are in a state of knowing, it makes a state of learning impossible. Now, we've all seen people in a state of knowing. Like whenever they bring experts on on TV, they're in a total state of knowing, right? They're not like a, oh, let's get curious about this and talk about it. It's like, I'm here as the expert on so-and-so. I'm going to go drop all my knowledge through this state of knowing on top of you. And actually, broadly speaking, the state of knowing, you know, is not just the, just the, per you know, the space that experts find themselves trapped in. It's what we constantly do every single day in all different aspects of our lives. So there's places that everybody is stuck, you know, like you can go through your life and there's some things that are probably awesome. And there's some things where you're like, I'm a little bit stuck, you know, it's been this way for, you know, six months, 12 months, two years, what have you. And it is a certainty that in the places that you're stuck, there's some elements of that that you are in a state of knowing. So what I ask people to do about this is I tend to ask them, okay, great, let's go pick a thing that you're stuck at. And just spend two minutes writing out everything that you know about it. And trust me, anything that you're stuck at, you know a ton of things about. You're like, it's this and it's this and it's this. And, you know, he won't listen to me when I do this. And she would never approve this if I were to try to do that. And da, 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 da. And like people write a dozen things. Now, then I ask people to circle any of those things and challenge themselves to write out just a couple things that they could still learn about that thing. Now, here's the critical distinction. The verb of knowing is the enemy of the verb of learning. And they aren't just, I'm not saying this in a, uh, you know, just a cool catchphrase type way. They are literally enemies in the brain. You cannot do them both at the same time. Because what knowing is in the brain is, is the freezing of the somatosensory cortex in order to go relay existing information without corruption. So I'm going to go freeze what I know, my experiences, my memories, and I'm going to go tell you those things with the least corruption that I can have. In That's what the state of knowing is. Learning is the opposite state. It says, let me open up the somatosensory cortex, absorb new inputs, synthesize them in new ways, find new meaning, and a subset of those things that have meaning will signal the hippocampus to become long-term memories. That's what learning looks like. Now, when you are in a state of knowing, that signaling of the hippocampus cannot happen. No new long-term stuff actually gets in there. No new synthesis happens. No new inputs happens. The state of knowing literally shuts down those capabilities. So when you talk about you know, places where a person is stuck in life, you got to go pull out some of the things that you know for sure. Oh, I know for sure that because I don't have my degree, I'm not going to be able to get a good job at so-and-so. I know for sure that, um, you know, my relationship with this person is too far gone. And because of that, like, she's not going to respond, even if I say all the right things, I know for sure that, and every one of these things is you, you choosing to use your brain in a very specific way, in a specific way that will not allow learning to, uh, even have the tiniest chance of happening. So what I ask people to do is pick any of those things circle one of the things that they know for sure and for 1 minute brainstorm anything that they could still learn about it and in the process of starting to write some of those things down they start to recognize yeah it's true um i guess i could still ask my boss about this even though he shut me down on that yeah that's that's still possible huh oh and i guess like a thing i could learn is when that proposal did go through that was a little bit like mine, you know, but I didn't understand why it got to go through and mine didn't go through. I could learn a little bit about how that one got through. And um, yeah, I know I felt really bad that I didn't get this promotion, but I could still learn from one of the people that did, you know, was there anything special that they did? You know, what was it that 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 seemed to matter in the way that they kind of presented themselves to the boss or the experiences that they took on or what have you, Right. Now, think about how different that sounds and how different it feels. I mean, I can literally hear somebody talk for about 15 to 30 seconds on anything and tell you whether they're in a state of learning or knowing about that thing. And sometimes being a state of knowing is fine. Like, being in a state of knowing is fine for anything that's already working the way that you want it to work. You want it to keep working that way. No problem. But we end up getting in this weird spot where we are in a state of knowing about the things that hold us back. And those are the places that we need to challenge them and move back into a state of learning. And I think that maybe leads to your second model, which is where you
1: say, don't guess at outcomes. Maximize your rate of learning.
0: Yes. So a lot of times, not only do we know things about the past because, or we're in a state of knowing about things in the past because we're like, oh, this is how it happened. We also project the state of knowing into the future where it's like, oh, I know I have the right answer. Oh, I know that like these other people in my office are wrong about so-and-so. If they only knew what I knew about so-and-so, they would all believe me, right? And once again, you, this is a very poisonous thing to happen. And a lot of times we actually encourage people because the old leadership model was to was to do that was to be the big boss, you know, uh, leading a thousand people in your organization and always seeming to know all the answers. But the truth is, especially as things speed up and we're working on more complex problems and so on and so forth, nobody knows any of the answers. You know, there's a great story that I heard. Um, The CEO of Sony was at like this once a year Sony, you know, science fair. And like, like what happens is all these divisions of Sony get together, and they show like their latest, coolest stuff. And he's just kind of walking around the floor, and he like, and he goes to a particular booth, and he picks a thing up, and he starts playing with it, and he's like, "This is phenomenal! This is incredible! This should be a product." And the people are like all looking around, like a little nervous to say anything. But he's like, "Guys, like I'm telling you, we should go make this a real product now." And like, finally, one of the people speaks up, and he's like. That wasn't the demo. That's actually been a product for the last three years. So there's a perfect example. Like, you know, a a person is the CEO. They should kind of know it all. But Sony has got so many products, it's actually kind of impossible to even know whether it exists or not, much less the right outcome for all of them. Now, this is true in the large for a CEO, but it's true in the small for even the smallest things that you're doing. Like the world is complex enough that you cannot know every single thing that will happen that will unfold. But what you can do is you can say, I'm going to maximize the rate that I learn into the world with the intention of a thing that I'd like to see happen in the world. You don't know exactly the, the form or the, uh, the form that the outcome will take in order to go see that, but it's actually totally fine, right? Like if you think about Edison with the light bulb, He didn't know that tungsten was going to be the thing. If he went around and he said, okay, you know, it has to be bamboo. Because there's a point where he like went to Japan in order to go work with this incredibly rare form of bamboo, thinking that that would be the filament. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, and then you soak it in salt water or some crazy shit. And it didn't work. Right. But it's like, let's say Edison had like decided that the outcome had to be the super rare bamboo from Japan. We would have no light bulbs. Right? But what he did instead was he maximized this rate of learning. He said, well, look, that's a really rare material, and we should try it out. That's a pretty rare material. We should try it out. Oh, I heard they're, they're mining this new type of thing over here. We should try it out. And without deciding exactly what the outcome should be, he had the intention of bringing light to life. It was kind of that simple. And you just kept on going with it, kept on going with it. until so, hundreds of iterations in through a very fast process of learning, He said, you know, they they happened upon one where the light could be sustained. It was beautiful in color and it, you know, could last long enough that it could become a product.
1: Tom, that's a beautiful, that's a beautiful message. I realize in so many organizations, people get so caught up in what they do on a day to day to day basis that they don't actually innovate. They don't actually learn. Abraham Lincoln said, if you were to give me six hours to chop down a tree, I would spend four hours sharpening my axe, right? Now, you take a typical team in a company, say a customer support team, and they do the same thing every day, day after day after day after day, clearing emails that come in, answering phone calls. Now, one of the things that we did, which which was all about learning, is we told the team that for at least one day a month, first Friday every month, no one is allowed to do any work. All you got to do, is discover new ways of doing customer support. So people might pick up a book on customer support from company X, or theories of customer support from company Y, or best practices from Inc Magazine, and just learn and learn and learn and learn and learn. And then we bring them together and we have them question the traditional way of us doing things. Then we maximize our rate of learning by doing split testing. What happens if you greet the customer with this line versus this line? Can we measure that? Can we plot that? And when we started doing this, amazing things happened. We went from being a small company with barely any decent customer support to getting customer support rankings in the top 2% of all American companies in the world. And um, it just shows the power of this thing, yet so many people and organizations forget that.
0: Yeah, I think what happens is people get very, and I'm not sure whether I put that as one of the ones we talked about today, but... People are very concerned about who they are, but they're not as concerned about how they do, right? And ultimately, how you did customer service was actually what made you become, you know, who you are in the top two percent of uh, of companies that are doing customer service. So, and it's because we actually ascribe so much of our success to a particular identity. Now. You know, in the intro, you talked about some of my background, but it's like, I have this habit, and I don't i don't even know if habit is the right word, but I, I typically destroy my career every four to five years. Like If you scoot back, you know, five years ago, people would say, oh, he's a corporate executive running a multi-billion dollar business. That's his career. You scoot it back five years, he's like, he's a cartoonist. You scoot it back five years, he's like, he's a roboticist and whatever, right? Like, mm-hmm. scoot back a couple years each time. And you would say, this is an entirely different person. And in some ways you could say, well, maybe it's just because there's like a lot of talent. But to me, it's actually something simpler than that, which is I didn't have a strong a sense of the the necessity of the fixed identity, right? Like I could have said, hey, I'm a pretty good cartoonist. Like this is my life now. I could have said, I'm a pretty good astrophysicist. This is my life now. And any stimuli that was different than that, I could have shut it down by staying in the state of knowing and saying, hey, I'm an astrophysicist. Here's the stuff I know. You're going to try to teach me about art and cartooning. What the fuck does that have to do with my my work? Get out of here. You're trying to teach me about robots. What does that have to do with my work? I do telescope observations. We don't need robots, right? Yeah. So all these things that eventually became my careers came through not just on any specific project, but in life itself, being in a continuous state of learning.
1: Now now that's interesting because one of the quotes which I remember you said at Awesomeness Fest on stage was something along the lines, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it was stay in the the challenge is to stay in the medium long enough to attain
0: mastery. So the, the quote is it's not about chasing success. It's about loving your medium long enough to create a masterpiece. Okay. And I took that to
1: mean that it's about staying in a specific field so that you can truly become an artist in that field. But from what you're saying, it sounds like you radically disrupt what you do
0: every four years. I Is think that- that's a great question. And, and I think there's two different ways to answer it. One of them, there's a difference between mastery and a masterpiece, right? So some of the greatest works were done by people within, um, you know, Einstein was a patent clerk for a while. And actually, a lot of his greatest works were done in his first five or six years as a physicist. So you could be like, hey, Einstein, you have not been a physicist for 50 years. This is not a masterpiece. But no, he actually did create a masterpiece in you know year three or four. So I think there is an illusion that we already have, which is unless you stick at something for your entire life, there is no such thing as mastery. But what mastery is, is not a specific amount of time. What mastery is, is a type of depth. Because every di- discipline that is a mastery discipline is infinitely, infinitely deep. So if I were to practice guitar every single day of my life, you know, and I do play guitar, so this is not that fake an example, but let's say I got super serious about guitar. I played guitar 10 hours a day for every single day of my life, practicing, learning, so on and so forth. You could, you could interview me on in my deathbed. And I would still tell you that there's an infinite amount more to learn about the guitar. Every mastery discipline is infinitely deep. Now, in the process, I might create all types of masterpieces. You know, like Led Zeppelin made a bunch of masterpieces when, you know, as a band, they weren't that old. Now, if you talk with Robert Plant, he will keep saying, I keep learning. I keep learning about the guitar. It's infinitely deep. and. I think the, the skill set of the master, any master really, is that type of dedication to kind of stay in a thing until you get to, you're in the depth of it. Right. The, the dilettante does the opposite where it's like, Oh, that's really shiny. And I'll, I'll I think I'll enjoy the shiny spots of it. And, you know, when any part of it is not shiny, then they leave. But. You know, in every one of the disciplines that I talked about, there are days when I was in the freezing cold lab during the summer, you know, as a 15 year old and all my friends were out there playing and I was going through massive, uh, you know, piles of astrophysical data and writing four transcripts. And this is not the glamorous stuff that people talk about, but there's a type of dedication to getting to the depth of a thing, to loving it deeply enough to, to experience its depth. And sometimes, you know, actually the glamour part of it is just a side effect, right? Like we we pay attention to the glamour because that's how our, our, our system of reporting and press works. But that's actually not what success looks like. Success looks like the 15-year-old kid writing four transcripts in the freezing cold, because the lab was unusually cold. We had these super cool lasers. There's a lot of reasons it was cold but it was not a comfortable environment to go into in the summer when you come in un- in shorts I had like sweaters and jackets everywhere just to like be there programming all summer. And for every other thing for robots, there was points where it's like, bam, this battery exploded and I'm here like just cleaning up the mess. And this is actually what success looks like. People don't really recognize that later on. It culminates in a side effect like a magazine cover or a, Winning a world championship or all that sort of thing, but like success really was that. So, so Tom, what do you mean by this? Don't stay in the medium. Sorry,
1: you said stay in the medium, not in abstractions. That's right. So, so, staying in so the... here's where here's where I may not be fully understanding you. It seems that on one hand you're saying stay in the medium, but on the other hand you do you especially you uh, have a have a um past behavior of moving from field to field to field, and amazing feeling you've had amazing successes but I still see that movement I'm just speaking in, along the lines of the people who might be listening because yeah. I think some people could be confused by the dichotomy of the two
0: I think it's great so I think a lot of people say oh I've been doing this for a while but they haven't really gotten their hands dirty in the medium so a really common one about entrepreneurship it's like Oh, you know, I'm lean certified and I, you know, uh, listen to all the podcasts on Seth Godin's, you know, uh, startup school and all that sort of thing. I'm like, so the entrepreneur and was like, well, tell me about the businesses you created. The medium of the entrepreneurs, the actual businesses that you create, it's not stewing and all these things, which are the accoutrement of the thing. So whenever I work on a thing, I get right into the medium. Right There's not a lot of BSing about like, oh, do I have the qualifications or will people see me as uh, being smart enough to go do it or capable of doing it? It's like, OK, you want to be a cartoonist, you better just start freaking drawing and coloring. This is not about now. I'm not saying that books cannot help you, that they cannot give you good ideas, that a podcast cannot help you and get you good ideas. But I think what happens is people mistake the listening about a thing or the talking about a thing or being in the medium itself. And this happens a lot with uh, creative folks in particular. They're like, you know, there's writers that never write. There are painters that never paint. And like everyone who ends up being successful at those things looks at those people, not, you know, not really with scorn, but just almost with the type of sadness where it's like you have the passion, like you want so badly to write but in any given day, you're not in the medium writing. That's what it means to be in the medium. It's not about the number of years, because when I do the things, I'm like deeply, deeply in them. There's very little time for the accoutrement of them. It is real if you're gonna do astrophysics, don't just like read a bunch of books about it. It's like get in there, look at the data, figure out like how to denoise a thing, figure out you know the the different velocity profiles that come out when these emission lines happen against this physical structure. Like those are the things that are actually the medium of astrophysics. I mean, there's beautiful videos about it. And I think that's wonderful that because that's the invitation to getting into the medium. But when you get into the medium, it is writing those Fortran scripts in the freezing basement, you know, against a bunch of data that was collected from the Palomar eight meter dish. It's like, that is what the medium of astrophysics Mm -hmm. is actually like. I see, I see. That
1: that that that's a beautiful message that really resonates with me. Some of my employees recently asked me why is it that I don't have a personal assistant. I I don't because the way I run my business. Like recently, um, a new desk came in from IKEA, and I stopped what I was doing and I assembled that desk myself. And and a sales guy in my team said, "Why why are you doing that? You could have just asked someone to do it." But to me, the act of of running the business, um, even down to the, to the act of running the business, especially when it's personal to me, from the way I operate, to the way I think, to the way I sketch out my ideas, even ex- assembling my own desk, to me, is entrepreneurship. And so I take, I have so much passion and drive into it. To me, that is the medium. And um, um, I'm not the guy who listens to every entrepreneurship podcast. I like to just get out there in the field and just do things. So, this really, really, really resonates with me.
0: Yeah. And and I'm not saying that there's never a thing that you should listen to, but really, like your listening to doing ratio, like there should be a lot more doing.
1: Well, it's there, there there is a phrase, right? Wantrepreneur, W A N T, W A N T R E P R E N E U R, a wantrepreneur. A one is, in fact, there's a podcast that an ex-employee of mine started called A one And it's about entrepreneurs who consider themselves entrepreneurs, but really all they're doing is studying and studying and studying and studying and studying, and studying without actually taking some action. One of the biggest right. advices I tell someone with an idea is like, look, stop wait, wasting two months trying to tweak that business plan. Just go out there and register a company name. Every little step, the baby steps are what lead to an actual creation.
0: Yes. And I have something similar. I call it the 10 second MBA. And the 10 second MBA is step one, do something, anything that actually improves somebody's life in a a noticeable way. Step two, make step one cash flow positive. That's like all that's actually involved with the business. Now, I think we get so confused where it's like, do I have a red ocean, blue ocean strategy? My two by two is right. It's like, and my spreadsheet's like uh, super accurate. It's like, no, business is just those two steps. Everything else helps to inform or support one of those two steps. But don't confuse the two steps, you know, with all this other stuff. And actually the the, the real... Psychological hack of the 10-second MBA is that everybody in the world has already done step one. If you've ever baked a pie for somebody or you ever helped somebody build a fence, you've done something that improved their lives in a noticeable way. And have there been other people that carried that forward and made a cash flow positive business around baking pies? Absolutely. Has anybody else ever made a cash flow positive business around uh, around building fences? Absolutely. So it's really like go out and do a bunch of step ones. And then figure out one of these step ones that you actually would you know, enjoy enough that you're going to do step two on. Mm-hmm. But that's all that is kind of involved to actually get started. It, the, the other things give you the illusion that you, of progress without the progress. And what's really interesting is that,
1: is that I found, and when I advise young entrepreneurs or people starting out in business, is that the most important thing is to actually go out there and take those steps. But as long as they have a guiding principle or a goal or some vision pulling them forward, so let's say that's the vision, that's the guiding principle, this is where they are right now, most people stay stagnant over here because they're trying to figure out what is that next step to get there. They don't understand that it doesn't look like this. It looks like this. You take a step, it may be completely in the wrong direction, but from every step, you learn something and eventually, Mm -hmm. every step leads to knowledge that gets you to that guiding goal. Right? That's right. So many people, because they're looking for the straight line, they forget that it really is about this. You know, in, in the book Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, he says one of the surest ways
0: to get rich is to just take baby steps. That's right. And when you think about I think it's the illusion of control that people are after. They say, Well, how did so and so get from here to here? But pretty much all the successful stuff was not actually even trying to be what it ended up being right? Like Instagram used to be a, called a thing, uh, a, used to be a thing called bourbon. It had like 10 times as many features, like photos were just like a little throwaway thing in the corner. But then when they launched it out there, they're like, Oh, well, people only like the photos part. And on a whim, somebody was like, Oh, let's go add some filters to it. And like from there. So if somebody were to say, well, what was the, I, you know, what was that step-by-step formula that made Instagram? It was like, make entirely the wrong thing. <laughs> You know, have a bunch of people dislike it. You know, have a little sub learn. feature, right? Have a sub sub feature that you weren't even paying attention to get a little bit of traction in it. But like that was that was the key. And actually, this is true of every single business. Like if you go talk to the founders and you scoop back in time, you say, "How did you get here?" It was exactly what you're talking about. This mm-hmm. this kind of zigzag. That- now, what happens is when we get to the magazine cover people want the short version of the story. They want like the Elon Musk, which is already the genius that already got everything done. And that's the last three steps out of 50. And those seem to have a very clear trajectory, but they don't want to hear that Elon Musk, which is like hanging out as a kid at PayPal, just thinking about payments and not thinking about this other stuff, not even knowing how to get PayPal to work. So, that's anyway, beautiful. you were about to say. I something. have, yes. I have
1: so many, I have so many people um, that I employ who, at certain points in their career, get stuck. And I think the last three things you've said is a really powerful part to get unstuck. So I'm going to recap for the people listening. Knowing Ooh. is the enemy of learning. That's number one. Number two, don't guess at outcomes. Just maximize your rate of learning. And number three, stay in the medium, not in abstractions. Love that. Let's go on to number four. Okay, number four is metabolizability is more important than the truth.
0: Right, metabolizability is more important than truth. So basically people are always seeking the truth as if knowing the truth gives you all the answers. And the, you know, the example that I gave was that when I was in second grade I was like pretty good at math. So I knew addition and subtraction and multiplication and division. And one day I remember my teacher taught me fractions. I was like, oh, holy crap. You know, like, not only do I know how to do all these operations on just these numbers, but now I know how to do on everything between those numbers. And I remember saying to her, I know all of math. (laughs) And she was like, oh, yeah, okay. And she (laughs) didn't, like, she didn't disagree with me. She didn't, like, tell me definitively I knew all of math. But there was this kind of feeling that yes i knew all of math now you know should she have just corrected me and said no no you actually you're a moron there's a ton more to math of course not right like that was the metabolizable lesson for me at that level now later on i learned about you know tensors and complex numbers and vector calculus and like, there's there turned out to be a lot more math than fractions but um But at any given level, a lot of times we talk to people and we want to deliver the truth. We're like, well, the truth is, you know, uh, like this, 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 and this. But what we don't think about is, is that the right lesson for right now? Actually, I met a woman at Awesomeness Fest and she's like a PhD in aromatherapy. Like if you ask her about anything, it's like, well, here's a three cents and here's, here's how you change this with these cents. It's like, whoa. It's like you just named 50 cents. I don't know. But it's like, um, you know, and she was telling me, oh, you know, her business is not going that well and people aren't buying it and she doesn't understand why. And I was like, you are basically trying to deliver Ph.D. lessons to second graders. You know, the person that goes into the candle store and likes some lavender is like in second grade relative to aromatherapy. They're not ready to hear all the crazy shit that you know about it yet. So if you're going to make a product, make like a third or fourth grade product for them that you know that expands them a little bit that like makes some sense to them can go build off of you know the understanding that they have of lavender it doesn't need to be untrue right it's not that fourth grade and third grade was untrue it's not that fractions are not true in fact I use fractions and addition and subtraction all the freaking time they're incredible lessons even though they're not as advanced as vector calculus or you know linear algebra or what have you right so metabolizability, if you want to serve people, metabolizability is more important than truth. Mm-hmm. So you'll be in there, you'll be the PhD in aromatherapy, but actually, you know, if a lot of your customers are second graders in aromatherapy, give them a third grade product. It's okay. Like that is actually going to be the most useful metabolizable thing for them. Not uh, every single thing you know. And I I learned this lesson the hard way. So I'm
1: trying to get, so one of my, my grand quest in life is to influence a billion people to start meditating daily because there are about 1,300 studies right that show that meditation leads to everything from more compassionate beings to to higher longevity. And so I invested millions of dollars and built this incredible app uh, called Omvana for meditation. And it went well. Two million people downloaded it and stuff. But what I found really interesting is that prior to that, I had working with a sound engineer created a product called Ohm Harmonix, which is just five audios. So you have five audios on CDs, and you have an app with 500 audios, which works on iPad and Apple TV and <coughs> iTunes, and it's going to work with Apple Watch. Guess which one sells more?
0: The, the five the CDs, one. the five
1: right. CDs, the five CDs sells more by a factor of almost two X in terms of revenue. And I've been beating my head about this because I put so much money and science and technology into building the ultimate meditation tool. Turns out people care about five CDs.
0: Now you know you don't need to beat your head because both of the things are valuable. Right, right. But the truth is, is that fewer people go to graduate school then passed the second grade and and the feedback i got is people couldn't
1: understand the complex app it was too complex for most people but we've learned our lesson and, and we're correcting that let's go on to the the fifth thing that you were going to teach us avoid good bad and other false binaries and use trunk and branches and or collect bright spots and associates that's a long one i'm going to repeat yeah. it again Avoid good, bad, and other false binaries. Use trunk and branches and or
0: collect bright spots and associates. So, so right. So, really, really, it, actually, that description is, is, sounds way more complicated than it is. But the normal thing that we do when we work on anything is like, oh, this person is smart. They think logically. Now, here's a thing that's hidden in logic. Logic is about determining whether things are true or false and then reasoning with With things that are true or false right so it's like if this is true and then that leads to that being true then you know and then you mix it with some other thing that's true then the output is true now what happens okay the thing the reason that we have logical thinking is that it's incredibly fast right if i can just mark something off as good or bad right or wrong true or false it's incredibly fast well of of those two i'm going to go for true right and Whatever, right? I'm just going to go real fast with that. Now, the thing about most of those assertions, though, is that they're, they're what I call false binary thinking. Most of the time, the world is actually not black and white. And, you know, in our, in our desire to go fast, we actually miss where the solutions are. So let's say two people are arguing. Person A and person B are arguing. Now, they have a specific, they, they each have a specific point of view on how to move the project forward. Person A is like, it's this, that, and the other. And person B, it's like, it's X, Y, and Z over here. But they, they can't, you know, because they need to make the other person wrong to succeed, they're both engaging in a type of false binary thinking. Now, whenever I've actually seen something actually accomplished, it actually tends to be a little bit more nuanced. It was like some of the ideas from A and two of the ideas from B, plus these ideas that neither one of them was talking about, you know, plus a distribution channel that they they wasn't even in the discussion. And that's actually the thing that ends up working. Now, when we go and, and make these binaries happen at the very basic level of how we use our brains, then we exclude the possibility of those nuances, which actually probably contain the solution. The other thing that happens between right and with right and wrong thinking is that it tends to be net subtractive to both parties involved. So broadly speaking, we're talking about what happens when you use your brain with right and wrong thinking. Now, right and wrong thinking oftentimes enforces a thing that I call a false binary. Because you're trying to say, is it which side of right or wrong is it? Now, most things that happen in the world and most solutions that go out there you know, are really a collection of nuanced attributes of a thing instead of a very crisp distinction. And this plays out most often in our, the sort of discussions that we might have at work, right? Person A espouses a particular view, person B espouses a different view, you know, in order for them to move forward and make the decision, one needs to make the other one wrong. Now, the truth is that ultimately the thing that works might be a, a little bit of what A was talking about, a little bit of what B was talking about, plus some things that neither one of them was talking about, you know, plus, you know, some things that, that are, are a weird merging of what they were both talking about. And that's actually what the solutions ultimately look like. If you've solved a lot of problems, it always looks like that. Now, you have to ask yourself the question then, why do we argue in a way that doesn't allow for the way that problems are actually solved? Because if in in the end it never looks like A was right or B was right, then why do we even go through this dance of trying to say that A was right or B was right? Well, it's because we've decided that logical thinking and true and false thinking and right and wrong thinking is the way to progress on an idea. When in truth, right and wrong thinking tends to be net subtractive to both parties. Because when A argues this and B argues this, let's say after a bunch of arguments, B says, fine, you're right, okay? Now, in a way, A is vindicated, but actually A is also diminished because A knows that B doesn't agree with them. That's, that's a, that, that actually tends to be very poor for teamwork, even if A won the argument. Now, a different approach to this is a thing that I call trunk and branches. So let's say two people disagree uh, with each other pretty significantly. Well, instead of talking about all the things that they disagree with, Just have them write on the board, you know, separately or together. It almost doesn't matter. You know, a lot of the stuff that they do believe in, a lot of stuff that they believe that, you know, is going to be useful to move forward with. And once you write all those things on the board, it might be 10, 20 things are written down. Just circle everything that's in common. And even people that disagree quite a bit actually have got, you know, if they've written 20 things, they typically have at least three, four or five things that are in common. And what you do is you circle those things in common and you call them the trunk. And what the trunk is for is this is the stuff that we both agree is useful to go do. Let's do it together. And when, you, when two disagreeing parties work on the trunk together, it rehumanizes them. In the process of arguing with somebody and trying to go win an argument, you need to dehumanize them. You have to be like, oh, what's wrong with these Republicans? They can't understand. Well, like they're morons. I mean, like you literally need to say things that are dehumanizing in order for you to move forward with your false binary thinking. But when you start like writing out, it's like, well, both Republicans and Democrats would like, you know, the citizens to be safe and they want them to be prosperous and they want them to be something you can get deeper and deeper into what that means. But like, as you go do that, you can say, well, actually, on any of these things we agree on, even though there's a ton of stuff we disagree on and anything things that we agree on, let's start to make a little bit of progress. And as you make progress together, you become team members again. And as you become team members again, you humanize each other. Then the process of humanizing each other, well, holy crap, there's so much that I'm understanding about you that I could not see when I was dehumanizing you into right and wrong. Now, from the trunk, branches are now possible. What branches are, are the things that were originally disagreements are now just branches. These are places that you guys are going to explore that are in different directions from each other. They do not agree, per se. There are different directions, but the branches makes the tree stronger. Because you know, you might say, oh, now that we have this trunk in common, I'm going to branch off in this direction and try this. And I know that you wanted to do this, and it's different than this, and it's fine. We used to argue about it, but I'm going to let you branch off in that direction and try that. We're going to come back and see what's nourishing the trunk. right? If, if neither of them do, then let's just stop those branches and we'll try some other branches. If both of them do, let's keep them both. These were possibilities that were not possible before in the right versus wrong type construct. So, trunk and branches construct is a way of replacing right and wrong that allows for a much more nuanced set of possibilities and also rehumanizes people in discussion.
1: That's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful model. Um, I, I can see how I can apply that in my life in so many different ways. Now, you mentioned something else bright spots and associate. What is that? Right. So,
0: bright spots are basically. Instead of even uh, having a bunch of discussions about right and wrong, you start looking at based on what we've experimentally done, what is kind of stood out as like, you know, a win that was bright, that like, you know, gave us ideas that were that were compelling. And the, the example that I use from Google Glass was that I asked the team to make 150 hardware prototypes in 10 weeks. It's like 15 hardware prototypes per week, every single week for 10 weeks. And at the time, the team that was doing this was only two other people. So it's like three people. And what happened was that, um, you know, three people needing to make 15 prototypes per week, each one of us needed to make a new pr- hardware prototype every single day of the week. Wow. Now, whatever. It, it's already, it already happened, so it's not too... It, I'm not that impressed with it because we already did it. It's not that uh, formidable after it's been done. Um, but... What happened at the end of that first week was really interesting, which is Bob, who was one of the guys on my team, he had gotten like, you know, four and a half out of his five prototypes done. And, but like, we had a meeting on Friday, which was about, hey, let's talk about the results of our prototypes and let's talk, you know, and then we'll brainstorm what to go build next week. And he was like, hey, Tom, well, I built the right number of prototypes, but I'm not, you know, a bunch of them didn't really work. So like maybe only like one and a half things are worth sharing out of what I built. And I was like, well, just hold on a second. Before you go there, you know, you built like four and a half or five things and you think that one or one and a half of them worked. Let's definitely present those. But for the ones that you think that they didn't work, tell me the five or 10% of it that did work, right? And he's like, what do you mean? It's like, well, maybe the experiment didn't turn out the way that you wanted, but maybe the way you set up the experiment was really smart. Maybe the way you analyzed the data from the experiment was really smart. Maybe there's a piece of code that, you know, some websocket code that you wrote to build this prototype that would be useful for another thing. That's a little bright spot. Now, you know, if you if you go and you talk about the bright spot, the 5, 10, 15% of it that did work, it lights up a little spot in your brain. And the way to understand bright spots is in comparison to dark spots. And this is why people have got all these weird phrases about failure. But I think this is a nuanced way to go work with failure, which is a lot more powerful. Which is, a lot of times people are like, oh, you got to fail fast. Just keep on failing. And somebody could have said that to Bob. It's like, well, no problem. You failed three and a half times on five prototypes. Just keep on failing. And we could have spent zero time looking at any of those prototypes. But what happens when you believe that something has failed is it, it darkens a spot in your brain and not only does it darken a spot in your brain it darkens the immediate associations around that spot so all of us have been in meetings where you know somebody comes up with an idea and a person very well meaning person will be like well 2 years ago we tried something just like that and because of that like we shouldn't do it because you know it was a disaster 2 years ago let's let's just not do it now what the person is saying is actually not true right like the new idea is not exactly the old idea Because two years has passed. Like two years in industry might be a major shift, right? Even if the idea is highly similar. But what's happening is they not only darken the spot around that failure two years ago, they darkened everything that sounds like it. And the danger of that is that a lot of things that end up being tremendously successful are only a little bit different than things that failed in the past. So before there was Facebook, which is the first site that got to a billion customers, there was MySpace, you know, which... Just got to around 100 million, right? Before there was MySpace, there was Friendster, which is more like 10 million. Before there was Friendster, there was Six Degrees. This is like 1997, so it was like quite a waste back. And the thing about Six Degrees is it flamed out massively during the dot com crash. And after Six Degrees flamed out, everybody in the valley said social networks were stupid. You know, like e commerce is where it's at. Social networks, you have to be an idiot to be making a social network. So not only did they darken the spot around the failure of six degrees, they darkened the, all the immediate associations around anything that sounded like a social network. Now, what that meant was all the subsequent social networks I talked about did not come from the Valley. Friendster came from CMU, MySpace came from Los Angeles, uh, you know, Facebook came from Harvard, and it wasn't until these later rounds that the Valley was like, oh, we got to get on this thing. It's like a train that's pulling out of the station and we're not on it. Like, we got to get on it. So the valley's not so stupid that they can't try to jump on something that seems to be taking off. But they did not originate any of those subsequent social networks because they darkened all the <laughs> associations around social networks for a decade, right. which is infinity. Beautiful. That's infinity time. So that's bright spots and dark spots. And what is an associate? So, right. So bright spots. So what happens with dark spots is it's like, they're like little black holes in your brain. Not only do they darken that spot, but they suck away everything else that sounds like it, right? So it's actually a really poor way for you to use your brain to have a bunch of dark spots in it, which is why the phrase fail fast is a very dangerous phrase, because labeling things as failures is just a mind state. And that mindset is a very, it's actually a type of abuse of the brain. Now, a bright spot is the opposite. When I told Bob what was the 5% that worked, what was the 15% that worked? instead of creating this little black hole that sucks away ideas, it lit up a little spot. So it's like, okay, the WebSocket code was good, right? No problem. Um, like the, the way that we analyzed the data was good, no problem. And as these little light spots light up, then the cross-association between light spots gives you more and more new ideas, right? So when I say light up the spots and, associ- and associate, what I mean is that as you you know, first go through the process of finding the bright spots uh, and kind of lighting them up. And they need to be concrete. This is not just about positive thinking, like thinking like, oh, that experiment wasn't so bad. It was great. That, that doesn't help you. You need to be specific about what in the experiment was actually useful and constituted a bright spot. So your WebSocket code, let's repackage it and we can put it in other places. Mm-hmm. That's a concrete bright spot, not just a fuck up, Bob, you know, everything is great. Like all your experiments are fun. It's like, no, It's you need to be concrete about your bright spots. Now, as soon as you have these concrete bright spots, though, they can cross-associate. Because I can say, oh, on this next prototype, we could use this WebSocket code in addition with this uh, other prototype that we tried that people had said failed. But like together, that might be a really interesting third prototype. So the cross, you know, my best understanding of creativity and the potential for problem solving is, it is directly proportional to the number and number of cross associations of bright spots in your brain. And this is why people that, that come from multiple fields tend to be so creative. If you are both an architect and a programmer, then you have this type of, you know, you have bright spots in both fields and they're cross associating all the time. You know, if you are an artist and a musician, you have bright spots in both fields and they're cross associating all the time. That's why we often find these people to be unusually creative compared to the norm because they've just, you know, through their multiple impressions, they've lit up a lot more spots in their brain. Beautiful. So so what we've just
1: learned from Tom is really a framework for how to be hyperproductive, creative individual. Knowing is the enemy of learning. That's number one. Don't guess at outcomes. Just maximize your rate of learning. That's number two. Number three, stay in the medium, not in abstractions. Number four. Metabolizability is more important than truth. And number five, avoid good, bad, or other false binaries. Instead, use trunk and branches. Collect bright spots and associate them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Awesome
1: stuff, Tom. So let's talk about um, your four systems for living. Now, the first one is habits. Neurons lead to time, space, matter.
0: Yeah, here we go. Yeah, I'm just writing the shorthand. So what I'm saying about that is that um, a lot of times people are stuck also because they, they feel like and they actually embody a bunch of bad habits. And our normal, you know, first pass resource when we try to combat our bad habits is, well, I just need to think differently. But well, what that is is like a neuron against neuron type thing. And it actually turns out your old way of thinking has, has already recruited a lot more neurons than your new way of thinking. So if you really do like a fist fight of your old neurons and patterns versus your new neurons and patterns, your old ones tend to win. And that's why people get stuck in uh, bad habits for a long time. But what you can do is if you can change the neurons of your new habits and modify time, space, and matter with them, instead of trying to fight them, fight you know, new neurons versus old neurons, then it can make a dramatic difference. So I'll give you a couple examples. So let's say, you know, you're a person who smokes cigarettes, but you don't smoke them all the time, but, and like you don't like the smell in your apartment, so you always smoke out on the balcony. This is actually a pretty common pattern that I've seen from a lot of people. Now, you know, you're getting more concerned about your health, and you'd like to quit cigarettes, but like whenever you are, are trying to pull up that willpower, it's your old neurons, which are massive fighting your new ones, which is like, let's try to quit now. Let's try to quit now. And a lot of times you lose. Now, what you can do instead is in a moment when your new neurons, you know, have that thought, instead of trying to fight your old neurons, use your new neurons to push a couch in front of the balcony door. Now, what you did was you used your new neurons to change atoms. And now when you try to go out the balcony door with your old neurons, you're like, I got to push the freaking couch out of the way. Now, that is a much harder thing to do now, right? It's not old neurons versus new neurons. It's old neurons versus the energy to push a couch out of the way. And actually, with that sort of architecture, it it helps you a lot. It gives your new neurons a little bit more time to come in there and be like, hey, actually, do you really want to be pushing the couch out of the way? That's a big, annoying thing for all of us. And that might be the thing that kind of tips you. Similarly, like another example of this is, I'm a musician and I've written tons and tons of music, but like, as I've moved from kind of living by myself to living with my wife and like having to share the space and all that sort of thing, my studio has gone from my entire living space as a studio to, okay, like a little bit more compact and some things are packed away and all that sort of thing. And that's fine. Like, like I, I like that, you know, the compromises were made in a way that I think were good for both of us. But a thing that I then noticed about writing music was that it was really slow for me to write music because whenever I wanted to write music, I'd need to go grab this effects processor from the closet and then plug it in and then turn these things on. And it's like if you were to time me from, you know, the amount of, you know, the moment that I wanted to write music to the moment that something was actually being recorded, it'd be like six, seven, maybe 10 minutes of like setting things up, putting some cables in, powering this thing up, like trying to figure out where that noise is coming from or whatever. And then I'm recording. Now, what I did instead was I pat, you know, brought everything together and I put you know, all my stuff onto two power strips. So now whenever I want to write music, all I need to do is go flip, flip, and press record on the computer and I'm writing music. Now, what I did was I took those neurons, the desire to write more music, and I changed time and space with them. Right? It's not an impossibly difficult task to say, put them all on the same power strip. Right? It's not an impossibly difficult task, that, but it's like by changing that, I made it so the amount of time to start writing new music went down from seven minutes down to like 15 seconds, right? the amount of time it takes to lean over, flip these two switches, and press record on an application. So I say this because a lot of people in, in self-help and self-improvement and all that sort of thing, they're fighting a neuron versus neuron battle. They will go read a new book and it's like, oh, this is the way I need to think now. Yeah, I, 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 I want to think more like this. Or they'll hear an inspiring thing and it's like, oh, that's so inspiring. I got to act more like that. And they're doing a neuron-to-neuron battle. What I want to say is whenever your new neurons have that moment of inspiration, change something about time, space, or matter. Because that's going to force your habits to change. Having to push your couch out of the way changes things making it so I can just lean over and turn on my power strip and start playing music, changed things. I did, I did something like
1: that, which helped me go from really dreading going to the gym to looking forward to it every day. I went out and I bought these two devices. One, mm. is, a, one is a Windows band that gives me, nice. which gamifies the entire experience, gives me my heart rate, my calories burned. And one is this nifty little thing um, which I now combine with, uh, iTunes radio. So I have like really amazing dance music when I'm working out. These two little things, which I now keep in my desk, fully charged at night. So I wake up in the morning, put on my gym shorts, grab these. These increase my, my, my time at the gym, my rate of going to the gym. It made almost made it double because all of a sudden it became so much more pleasurable and also so instant. I could immediately put this on hit down to the bottom of my condo and get into the gym. I love that idea.
0: Right, right. And atoms and always beat neurons in the long run. Like I can stare at a fork and try to think it away, but it's going to be there. And if you can change you know, atoms in your life, then that will also change your habits. Let's go on to number two, 10% yes. Better Fridays. Oh yeah, this one's really simple. So what we do, uh, so both me and my team, and I've been doing this for a long time, but on Friday morning at 10 a.m., You look back at the week, and you just write down on the left-hand column what are you know three to five things you got done in the week. And if it's you as an individual, then you can write those. Or if you are a leader running a team, you can write down three to five things that your team got done that week. And then in the right-hand column, you write 10% better up top. And next to each one of those things that you got done, you write down a thing you could try next week that would make that thing 10% better. Sounds really, really simple, but there's a couple different hacks going on at once here. Number one is um, the reason that it's done at Friday at 10 a.m. is Friday. You know, most of the week is gone, but it's still a work day. So if you actually came up with a 10% better in this column that that's really easy to do, then you just walk around. It's Friday. It's a work day, and you tell the two or three people that would be involved with doing it differently. Hey, next week we're going to go try to do so and so this way instead of the way that we did it the past week. Done. So you can get a bunch of your 10% experiments underway very quickly because it's still a work day. If one of the experiments ends up being really difficult, where you're like, oh man, I don't know how I would do that because we'd require this, that, or the other. Well the fact that it's a Friday is another hack because you have the whole weekend. So by the time you get back there on Monday, you've had enough time to like at least get a sense of how to go do it. So Friday at 10am is critical because it means that you're more likely to do all of them uh, just based on where it's situated in the week. Now the other mental hack is 10% better because we tend to do two things. We either tend to get to a level on a thing where we're like, "Oh, I'm pretty happy with that," and we stop thinking about it entirely. And because of that, like we never get better at the things that we have got we gained some competence in. Now when you ask somebody though, it's like, "Hey, Vision, you're really good at so and so, but could you do it 10% better? Well, all of a sudden you're like, uh, probably. That doesn't sound that hard. It's only 10% better. Now, you might not have been thinking about making it any better because you're already satisfied with it. But like asking yourself to be 10% better on top of it nudges you out of the kind of um, the the lethargy of satisfaction with something, you know, that, that you feel it that you're pretty good at. Now, the other mental hack around 10% and this This can add up quite a bit. The other uh, mental hack around 10% better is, you know, there's the case where we really feel like we already know how to do it, which we talked about. And then there's the case where we don't know how to do it at all. And a lot of times when we don't know how to do it at all, we're like, oh, we suck at this. We need to be 100 times better. And because of it, you never get started. Right. So if instead you say, hey, I don't know how to do this thing at all, but all I'm going to go do is be 10% better than last week, even if I start at, you know, by sucking at it, then that gets you out of the trap of saying, well, I'm so bad at this. I can't even start. I need to be a hundred times better. You'll force yourself to be like, okay, I don't even know how to do this, but next week I'll do a 10% better job of learning some of the basics, right? And I'll do a 10% better job of that. Now, if you do this every single week for a year, then it's like, it's compounding. So 1.1 to the 52 is like 137 times better. And this happened to me in my career in a bunch of real instances where I would keep doing this every single week. And there's a point of time in my career where I was, uh, you know, I was one of the executives in this multi billion dollar business. I had this meeting with this, this guy who was an even bigger executive. He had 9,600 people reporting to him. So pretty important guy, like two thirds of the company reported to him. And I'm talking with him about strategy in this 90 uh, minute meeting. On minute 15, he has this idea. He's like, Hey, Tom, couldn't you guys try this, that, and the other? I'm like, Great, no problem. So I'm like, you know, typing my computer as if I'm just writing down what he's saying. But what I'm actually doing is I'm pinging several people in my team with this idea. 30 minutes later, I'm like, Hey, Ari, you remember that idea you talked about a half an hour ago? He's like, Sure, you know, where we do this? What about it? I was like, Try it out. Turned around my computer, pushed it in front of him, and he starts playing with the prototype. And as he starts playing with the prototype, he's like, okay, number one, I don't know how you made this prototype, but number two, it looks like all this data is real. I was like, of course, we use real data. It's like, I have 9,600 people reporting to me. I can't make something happen like this in two months. I don't know how this is possible in 30 minutes. And what he didn't realize was this was the accumulation of a bunch of 10% betters. Right. Ten percent betters in terms of, of actually freeing up some of the time in my organization to be able to do fast prototyping. Ten percent betters in terms of of spending time investing in a data prototyping platform that allowed us to sling around 80 different data sources at, you know, at the drop of a of a hat. You know, 10% betters in terms of team communication. Like, you know, when I send out a very simple command, having the team be able to elaborate that very quickly, 10% betters on everything on the seating arrangement so that the people could talk to each other and coordinate super quickly when I, when I fired something out like that. And I love that
1: because that relates so much to the first part of what you spoke about in terms of how to be more creative, how to learn, how to, um, improve your rate of learning. 10% 10% right. better is the perfect way of applying that, asking yourself. So it's not just learning. It's not just dealing in, in the abstraction, but it's asking yourself, how can I make this aspect of my life 10% better? And what was it you said? If you can do a 10% better improvement every Friday for 52 weeks, what is the end number you end up with?
0: It's like 137
1: times better. Amazing. Love that. Let's go and on that's,
0: to this. Yeah, go ahead. Let's go on to the third one, reasoning in actuals. So this is actually a really important one. So really common that um, people in reasoning with conjectures, where they will come in and it's like, hey, I think our next project should be this. And a different person's like, well, I kind of disagree. It makes sense for the next project to be this. Now, what they think that they're doing is they're having a discussion. But like with my scientist hat on, what I'm, what I'm seeing is that you don't have any data at all. So all you're doing is like throwing around conjectures. So imagine the way that science was done was like somebody would come in and be like, I think the earth is flat. Oh, you know what? I think it's triangular. Uh, you know, I think it's a, a circle. Well, let's keep arguing about it until we agree on a thing. That's a terrible way for anything to get done, actually. But this is the way that we do business 90% of the time. And I call these things guessathons a thons because everybody's guessing at what the right answer is, but nobody has a direct experience of the right answer actually working in front of them. Now... The key distinction from this way of working is what I call reasoning and actuals. So actuals are when you see a customer or whoever you it is you're trying to help in the world through what you're building, when you see them have a specific behavior with the thing that you've created, that's an actual thing that happened. And when you reason with those actuals, they actually tend to add up together really, really easily. Now, because here's a true thing that happened in the world plus another true thing that happened in the world, and it, and it gives you a really high signal-to-noise ratio in the way that your mind works. Now, let's say I have a bunch of actuals, but I add in one conjecture. Well, one conjecture that the Earth is triangular, you know, two tons and tons of useful actual facts, uh, can ruin the entire thing. So what I actually ask people to do instead is, it's not that there's anything wrong with conjectures. But you can have guesses and conjectures, but the, the natural output of guesses and conjectures is what is the experiment that we will try? Those experiments lead to actuals. From the actuals, that's where we come with decisions. Actuals lead to decisions. Conjectures lead to experiments. And I think if you have that mindset, then you save a huge amount of time. Because a lot of times people will point back It's like. Hey, we had this debate three months ago. We already decided so-and-so. Well, those decisions were based on no actual information. And as actual information comes in the world, a lot of times we choose to ignore it, in fact, because we're like, we already decided so-and-so. But that was decided off of ultimately nothing. So when we mix the two, we, we end up with a lot of messiness conjectures need to stay very separate from actuals if you're going to reason and decide things about the world reason in actuals if you want to come up with conjectures realize that there's nothing to debate about conjectures conjectures are just things that are the input to create experiments there's no conjecture that is better than another conjecture that you just say how does the conjecture become an experiment how does that conjecture become an experiment? Let's just try both of the experiments and then reason in actuals on the other side of it. Now, really simple process, but by thinking in that way, the clarity of your thinking inside of a business or anything that you're trying to do in life is, increases tenfold or more. And like the quality of the decisions that you make on the other side of your actuals is phenomenal. So it's about looking at actual metrics
1: and data rather than our ideas around them?
0: Right. Well, conjectures are guesses on what might happen, right? So a classic conjecture is like, let's say I'm in a particular business and I might come in and it's like, hey, you know what? Um, I think it'd be really lucrative for us to go sell more to the baby boomers. That's a conjecture. Now, nothing wrong with the conjecture. You got to start somewhere. Like if nobody comes up with any conjectures, you won't even try to experiment. But it would now be useless for somebody with a different conjecture to be like, oh, boomers are a terrible segment to go for. We need to go for millennials. And then for you guys to debate for like three hours on the thing, which is what happens most of the time in most businesses. Now, actuals are, hey, actually, um, we did a quick experiment with with, uh, boomers. We did a quick experiment with millennials. And here's an actual thing that happened during that experiment. Now, I I would enrich what you were saying, Steph, which is it's not just about data and metrics. It can also be observed qualitative behavior, which is like, oh, we set up a little kiosk and a couple of boomers walked up and we set up a little kiosk and some millennials walked up. And I could just tell from their expression on their face that they were lost when we got to this point. Now, that's not tied to any database metric or whatever, but it's like I talked with 15 people and they were just lost. Well, that's an actual that happened with your boomers or that's an actual that happened with your millennials. And then if you reason with that, which is we gave them this pitch, they were lost, then you can go build off of that in a really you know, concrete way. Similarly, if you got the, you know, the commerce data, it's like, oh, uh, we presented this to 15 people and they were so excited about it, they wanted to buy it right there. Even though it's not tied to a specific database metric yet, you're like, yes, we can use that actual to go build off of that as our next step in terms of reasoning about our business beautiful
1: and let's go on to the final one which is doing is the best type of thinking no guessathons
0: yeah so this is quite related to the previous one but doing only by actually including your customers in the loop do you actually, do you have any real sense of what is going to happen in the world right so in school they teach you they teach you two fundamental untruths which really need to be undone Number one is they teach you that there's one right answer. And they teach you that because it's easier to go set up a test if there's one right answer. It's easier to create a test where there's only one right answer to each question. But in the world, if you wanted to, you know, for example, you want to go bring meditation to the world. There's not one right answer for meditation for all people to the world in all instances. There's dozens of products that you've created to be able to go explore, you know, ways of making that happen. And in fact, for anything that you're trying to solve, there's probably 50 ways to get something really interesting and valuable done against it. There's never one right answer. Then the other thing that that they teach us in school, which is a fundamental untruth, is that you should think before you do. Now, this makes sense on a test question, because on a test question, they necessarily need to provide all the data for you to make it possible to solve the problem. It would be unusual and cruel to only provide 25% of what you need to know and then just not be able to solve the problem uh, for a test. In the real world that's how all of us have to actually solve problems. Because as entrepreneurs we don't know exactly what the solution form is going to be. At the beginning we only have 25% of the variables. And what happens with most people especially people that come up from, you know, from the education system and have done a good job in the education system is They spend a hundred, you know, they try to do a 100% optimization on 25% of the variables that they could see. And this is them thinking, thinking, thinking instead of doing. Now, if instead of doing that 100% optimization on 25% of the variables, you just start doing in a very short amount of time, you would see the rest of the variable. You actually try to serve somebody in that way, you will see the rest of the variables very quickly in like a week or two. And after 2 weeks if maybe now you've seen 80 or 90% of the variables unless you do a terrible optimization on that you only do a 50% optimization you know it's your first guess on 80 or 90% of the variables you st- still end up miles ahead than 100% optimization on 25% of the variables so this is why doing is the best type of thinking right by doing you kind of un you you, you sidestep the problem that most of us have in most of the innovation problems that we face, which is not all the data is there for you to even come up with an answer. And only by doing do we see the rest of the the variables. And only by seeing the rest of the variables is it even possible to solve the problem. So this is why doing is the best type of thinking. You need to jump in there and start doing because your thinking is actually invalid until you begin doing. It is the 100% optimization on 25% of the
1: variables. It is the 100% optimization on 25% of the variables. Yes. Beautiful. Thank you, Tom. Um, I know there's probably a lot of key ideas here that you can apply in your own life. But what's beautiful about what Tom has just shared with us is that many of these ideas, we can teach to our teams and dramatically improve the productivity, execution, creativity, rate of innovation of whatever organizations we run. So thank you, Tom. Okay. Thank you, Vishen.